these books are time machines, right? These books have traveled 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, 700 years from the past to us today. And they connect us to that past. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode, we're taking you back in time to September 2021 for a talk from our Acton Lecture Series. Books connect us in a very real way to people and ideas from the past. This talk from Chris Bex of the Remnant Trust explores how we can help current and future generations understand the thoughts and the minds of the thinkers of the past through printed books and publications. This talk was held in conjunction with a display at the Acton Building in Grand Rapids of a collection of manuscripts, first edition, and early works dealing with the topics of individual liberty and human dignity, with some pieces dating back as early as 2500 BC. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Good afternoon. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Director of Program Outreach here at Acton. Well, we are thankful for all of you who were able to participate in all of our live streaming events over the last 18 months. It's an absolute privilege to have you here in person. I must admit, I'm glad to see each and every one of you filling the seats, and we're looking forward to more in-person events in the future. Today, it is my privilege to introduce Christopher Becks, president of the Remnant Trust to the Acton Institute. He will share much more about his background and the work of the trust in his talk, and we're delighted to be hosting all of the wonderful books over the next few months. At the conclusion of his talk, there will be ample time for questions, as well as time to take a look at all of the artifacts that we have curated for this event. And please keep an eye out for the communication coming in the next uh, few days regarding special open house dates in the evening if you would like to bring people back down to both enjoy Art Prize here in Grand Rapids and see these works. We'll have several evening special events as well as times during the week to host school or community group events to come and see these artifacts as well. So without further ado, please welcome with me Christopher Becks. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Dan. And uh, my thanks to the Acton Institute for uh, bringing the Remnant Trust and indirectly bringing me to uh, Grand Rapids. So uh, two things uh, occur to me to begin with to, uh, to, to open this up. Uh, an author that I like, uh, Orson Scott Card, once said that when we're not forced to do something else, we tell stories. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you a story, and most of it's true. Uh, growing up, my grandmother spent a lot of her time lecturing the family, um, which I guess maybe is what grandmothers do. And this factors into uh, two things in, uh, in what I'm going to tell you about the history of the Remnant Trust, how we got started. She used to say that it was undignified to stand in front of a group of people without your coat on and to talk. So in all deference to grandma, I'm taking off my coat, but you, any one of you is welcome to come up, pick the coat up and wear it and have all the dignity that you want while I give this talk. But she also said that the only thing that excited college professors is old books. And as I was told, she was a Phi Beta Kappa in math and physics at the University of Chicago when girls weren't supposed to do that kind of thing. So that conversation really led to what is the Remnant Trust, the portion of which is on display here at the Acton. Uh, over 25 years ago, a group of businessmen, entrepreneurs, academics, men and women, 
got together and talked about the ideas of liberty and dignity and higher education and what could we do to engage people in that conversation more than what they engage with it now. And a combination of my mother's, grandmother's comments and the Great Books Program, people have heard about that, the 100 great books that we're all supposed to read to understand things. And we thought in starting the Remnant Trust that we would be very narrow and we would focus on the 100 greatest works about liberty and dignity. And we consulted authors and we consulted academics around the country to get a list of what are those great books. And after compiling that list, that's when we set about to create what is now the Remnant Trust, that we would get these originals, um, often first English translations, but as earliest of a version of them that we could put our hands on. You'll see uh, Latin and Greek and things like that in our collection as well. And that we would share them with anybody who was interested. So to test that experiment, early on, we went to various academic institutions small private ones, large public ones, to see you know, if we could access their rare books, their great works of liberty and dignity. A good example over uh, in the room behind us is St. Augustine's uh, City of God, first English translation is 1610, first time it came into English. So to verify that book when we tried to add to our collection, we went to Notre Dame, right? There's probably somebody in South Bend knows about Catholicism, could help us understand that. And the experience we had there was, uh, was kind of twofold. It took us going through five different people before we could find their first English translation of Augustine's City of God. Three people before we could figure out what vault it was in. And of course, two more to figure out what the combination was. Um, we had another experience at Indiana University, uh, my alma mater, and I can share that with you later, but uh, it's not really that big a deal right now. But what we discovered is that where these things existed, they were locked up, right? Librarians want to preserve and uh, you know, just kind of maintain them in that, in that condition. But the idea of having access to these originals, would they be, are they useful tools, right? Are they interesting? Are they engaging? Are they exciting? Or even sometimes inciting to people to think about the ideas that are contained in them. So as we built that collection um, from that list of 100, and now we have almost 1,500 volumes in the collection, uh, we add to it on an irregular basis. And we travel to between three and five um, institutions, whether they be colleges or universities or prep schools and things like that every semester, and share a selection just like you see here today. And the mission of us of the trust is to get people to engage in that conversation, to talk about those ideas. Um, one, one point of reference there would be, I don't know if any of you like The Simpsons, but there's an episode of The Simpsons where they have an exchange student who comes over from Albania, I think. And Lisa, the smart one in the, in the family, is having a conversation about America and what it represents. And this is one time that I'll reference that you should be like Homer because he tries to mediate this conversation by saying that maybe Lisa has a point about America being the land of opportunity, and maybe a deal has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. So again, this is one time that you should reference and be like Homer, because it's about those conflicting ideals. It's about that conversation. It's about the give and take of those, of those ideas, and it's about spending a few more minutes every day than we normally do. I don't know, I've, I have three kids at home and I don't talk to them enough about these ideas because we get caught up in the other things that we're doing. And I watch more professional football probably than I should. And I should take a few more minutes a day to think about maybe Aristotle or Plato or uh, Plato's Republic 1763, first English translation is in that room back there. And I think when we get done, they'll open the cases and you'll have an opportunity to do something that I would wager none of you will ever have again. You'll have the opportunity to hold in your hands these original first edition works, some of them 700 years old. And we, the Remnant Trust, like to do that because we experience it engaging people, it sparking conversation. And that kind of leads me to uh, the title of my talk, which at some point when they said I was coming up here, they said I needed to, they wanted to know what I was going to talk about. 
other than the Remnant Trust. And so I made up a title that was about these time machines from the past and why we're going to talk about that. So these books are time machines, right? These books have traveled 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, 700 years from the past to us today. And they connect us to that past. Maybe they transport us back to certain events in history. There's a Magna Carta in there from 1350 manuscript. Um, it would be easy to imagine what takes place in 1215 or in the years leading up to that where the lords of the manor decide that the king can't do anything that he wants, that there have to be some sort of reins put on him. And I think it's an easy connection to make to what the founding of our country was based upon uh, throwing off shackles, as it were, of the monarchy and how we would set that up and the guidance that we took from those people from the past. This is not what you get to experience today with those books, not with me. What you get to experience today with those books is not new. This has been going on for hundreds of years. This has been going on as long as printing's been around. So what, that's 1450. This has been going on as long as writing and paper have existed that people have interacted with these ideas to, to think about what's going on, to think about how, we, how did we get to where we are today? How did someplace like the Acton Institute come to be? And how do we move forward? Do we want to move forward in the same way and why? And I think it's that, that question of why that is complex. It's complicated. It's not easy. It's not black and white. It's not a one or a two. Um, to reference another book in the collection, it's not two plus two even, right? Anybody know what book I'm referencing? Two plus two equals five. Nope. 1984, Winston, right? When they're trying to convince him that he has to say that two plus two equals five. And not only does he have to say that, he has to mean it and believe it. And 1984, along with Orwell's uh, Animal Farm, they're pre-proof copies, uh, you know, pre-first edition copies that are on display here, are great examples of science fiction, one of my favorites. Also an example of dystopia, maybe a utopia. It depends on how closely you read 1984 to decide if it's a utopia or a dystopia. But that's also part of what these authors have been doing for hundreds of years. Uh, Plato's Republic, it's a, it's a piece of utopian fiction, right? I mean, he's, he's trying to describe the way he would like to see the world to be. Isn't that why we're, I mean, isn't that why you guys are here right now? I mean, we are working on and digesting these ideas, these complicated things of the society that we live in and what we may or may not leave to later generations. Are we leaving them a good thing, a bad thing? Is it on an upswing or a downswing? We could talk about Ben Franklin's comment about the rising sun, rising or setting, and, and, and we don't know how that's, going to, uh, how that's going to play out. But we're here because we care about it. We want to talk about it. We want to think about those ideas and where they will lead us. So I'd also highlight two or three of the books that are on display today that uh, may be of interest if you didn't know that they were there already. There is a first edition King James Bible 1611 pulpit on display, uh, 410 years old this year. And for me, my background being an English major, of course, I look at the language in 1611 similar to the language of Shakespeare. And it's one of, I think, very few authors that permeates our language, whether we know it or not. The phrases and terminology that come from those two books uh, weave their way through our conversations day in and day out. And a, a couple of examples, right? So streets paved with gold, that's pretty simple. We know that came from the Bible. But things like the be all and end all, or the alpha and omega, right? One of those is from the Bible and one of them's from Shakespeare. To be at wit's end, the skin of my teeth, turn the other cheek, all of these phrases, and, and I can go on if you want me to, but, but I won't, that permeate our language and affect how we interact with one another. And those, those ideas, those books, those authors that have addressed 
the ideas of liberty and what it means and dignity, which is much more complicated, I think, than, than the liberty conversation. And they're not always people or authors or titles that we would recognize or that we would immediately say, oh yeah, I like what that has to say. That's why we have things like the Communist Manifesto in our collection, because they address those problems. They address the nature of the dignity of man. I don't necessarily personally agree with it, but it's part of that conversation, and we should understand it. That's, it's easy to say why John Locke's Two Treats of Government is in there, because it's where Jefferson references the idea of life, liberty, and estate, property. He changes that into pursuit of happiness. Because he was doing what we do. We look to those authors, we look to those ideas, we look to those works, and allow them to work their way into our heads to shape and modify how we see the world and how we interact with one another. <clears throat> so back to some of the nuts and bolts about the Remnant Trust. We find these books anywhere you can imagine. When, when the question comes up, I tell people that we get them any way you can imagine short of stealing them. So whether it's uh, auction houses or antiquarian book dealers, uh, private collectors, uh, people that we deal with around the world and have for the last 25 years is how we've been able to amass this collection. Um, and it has been, um, it, it, it's had its moments as far as finding things like that. And uh, one of the other uh, questions that we get often is about letting people handle these documents. How dare you? I, I have been lectured by a few librarians. Um, so, short answer, the Remnant Trust owns them and can do what the Remnant Trust deems is correct to do with them, but also it's about that contact. It is a completely different thing to, um, the example I often go to is uh, to look at Indian arrowheads in a display case at a museum. Uh, we were all in fourth grade and made the trip to the local museum and you marched past the display case and you went home and you told mom and dad that you saw something like that. But it's different, I think, I think it's more real. The word I use is that it concretizes history. These are the real things. Again, as an English major, I read the Norton Critical Editions in class, and I read the excerpts I was supposed to, or I read the novels I was supposed to, and I listened to the gray-haired professor tell me what I was supposed to understand about this. But this is an opportunity for people to, um, to use uh, Whitman's terms, not take things at second and third hand. Uh, it's your own personal interaction with these documents. And I mean, I think it's great, right? I, I, I think it's fantastic. I, I get to pick these books up and travel around and show them to people. And I get to force them on people because nobody wants to touch it, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to pick it up. Um, I, I start turning the pages and pointing to cool things. And I'll tell you about one of my other favorites <clears throat> in just a moment. And to actually force them to take it into their hands, right? Because we, we respect it, we revere it, mostly because it's old. And occasionally because of who the author is or what's contained in it. Uh, and I respect that a lot more than the fact that it's old. But the fact that it's old usually keeps us from touching it. But if we can get past that for just a moment, and you can put your hands on those things, and you can hold them, you can be a time traveler too. You can go right back to whatever that time period was, whether it's Locke in the 1600s, it's a 1300s Magna Carta. Uh, there's a 1440 manuscript of Boethus's Consolations of Philosophy in there. <clears throat> and it is probably my favorite particular volume in the collection for a couple of reasons, but uh, of note is the fact that the ink has be turned acidic, and so it's slowly eating itself, right? It, it's, it's actually destroying itself, and we have things to mitigate that, but you'll notice when you look through it that there are gaping holes in the middle of sections because of that. And also it's interesting because it's an early version of prison literature, right? I mean, Boethus is, is jailed and starts to try to figure out his life, right? We, we, occasionally we all hit that, that dark night of the soul, and we're trying to figure things out. And he's writing about philosophy. And philosophy is going to save him, right? It's going to come and, and guide him to the better understanding of what's good, which is what Boethus talks about in that. What, what is the good in life? And is it fortunes, or is it friendship, or is it material? 
And of course, it's none of those things. And Boethus directs us that it's a, that it's a deeper question. Um, it's more meaningful. And I'll reference again uh, an author I care for who wrote that the consolations of philosophy are many, but they're never enough. Right? They don't quite get there. It's it's like the it, it's like the, what is, this is from uh, Dead Poet Society, right? The sheet that you can pull up on yourself, but it's not quite enough. You can't get it to cover you. Your toes are sticking out. Your hands are sticking out doesn't quite cover your shoulders the way that you want, you're always looking for a little bit more. And I think that's part of what the trust is about. I think it's part of why people gather together to talk about these ideas. I think it's uh, potentially why people gather together and bring up 48-year-old guys who handle books all day to give them their thoughts on why they're there and why they think they're neat. One more point I'll make, and then I'm much rather answer your questions than ramble on. One of the concerns that people have, especially in the last, say, 20 years or so, has been about um, the move away from books, uh, that we've gone digital. We all have, I presume, every single one of you has a, has a phone. I don't see anyone that's too young, if there is such anymore, that, that we've all moved to that. That's how we interact with much of the world today. And occasionally, you hear people talk about, um, I think of them as old fuddy days, like, oh, no, we can't make this progress. It's bad because we'll lose sight of these other things. Um, but in, uh, in, in recent research, I discovered that John Locke was concerned about books. He was concerned about books creating some sort of static version of an idea and that we would um, deify or reify that volume. And uh, I want to share with you this one passage uh, from a book called The History of Books. Um, that, that Locke was deeply skeptical about the value of books as a source of knowledge. In his eyes, they were likely to be repositories of falsehood and superstitions as of truth. And he saw the real dangers in the illusion that books were containers of knowledge. And I, I love that. I, I love that, one, it makes a more contemporary concern that we've had even more ancient and even more thoughtful, right? Because John Locke thought it, it wasn't just Steve who thought about this idea, and that Locke was concerned about that. And he went on to say, the only true source of knowledge is that disclosed directly to the senses. Books must be seen merely as mechanisms of transmission, a fulcrum between sender and receiver, rather than as a repository or a container of a fixed truth. And I think that lends itself almost directly to the idea of this conversation, and that that's why we continue to circulate. It's not about the book. And I would make that, make that point all day. The book is the catalyst, or the key, or whatever, the knock on the door, to get us to think about the ideas that are complex and complicated inside of them. So. Yes, appreciate that they are old and that they are incredibly rare and that it takes some amount of capital outlay to, to get these things into your possession. But I would rather you focus on it being about the ideas that are in them and how we deal with those ideas and where those ideas lead us. And I'd be happy to answer questions uh, about the trust or about any particular volume or anything like that if you guys have, uh, have questions. Does anybody take those books and read them from cover to cover? And is it possible, based upon what I saw there, the script, the different languages, the condition? And are there occasions where you might have read those from page to page? Uh, so uh, good question. Uh, seldom does anyone, uh, when we take these out, uh, read them cover to cover. Um, I was just uh, discussing with a gentleman earlier who was looking at one of the manuscripts who could read Latin, but reading whatever uh, script that scribe had put down would take more extensive work. Uh, there are occasions, though, we have uh, a, uh, a manuscript of the Book of Enoch, one of the books of the Apocrypha from the Bible, the oldest uh, copy known to exist, actually. And we have had people work through that entire volume um, to read through it. Um, 
There are definitely occasions, a couple of the books in the collections that I have read, the physical object that we transport around cover to cover. Um, I'll take an easy way out and say that Animal Farm is one of them uh, th that we have in the collection as well. And um, there are some of those, but people have that opportunity to interact with them. And then as far as how do they spend more intensive time um, in thinking about them, there are reprints and reproductions of some of them. It's not something that the trust has done in mass, but there are maybe about a dozen that we've reproduced. Um, basically taking a picture of every page and, and made that available. So, thank you. Anybody else? Sure. What's the story behind your bracelet? <laughs> uh, so, I know somebody who makes chain mail, and that's what it is. So, uh, it's, it's a silver and steel uh, handmade chain mail bracelet. So that's yeah, good. Question, does the uh, Remnant Trust have uh, programming that allows for people to consider, discuss, and evaluate the principles that you're trying to promote through these books? I appreciate that. It's a great question. Um, honestly, it's almost like I planted that question. We have started to scale up uh, recently. Uh, our first uh, seminar conference is coming up in about a month. Uh, we're bringing in uh, George Will and some other panelists to have a conversation about the Constitution, the First Amendment, and hope that to be a, an ongoing series. But uh, to this point in time, what we have done as our program is about sharing these documents and taking them around to colleges. So that's been our main focus to um, uh, hopefully get them incorporated into existing curricula and things like that. And so far we've gone to, I, I wanna say about 100 different universities and colleges over the last 20 years. But in looking to um, bring in more people to engage in that conversation, that's something we're looking to doing. Thanks. Yes, sir, there's one in the back. So most uh, libraries require gloves and, and all manner of precautions in the handling of their precious books. What, what precautions do you take to protect the items that, that people handle? Good, good question. Uh, so uh, first step, like, a, like an event like this, uh, you guys won't be able to go into that room with food or drink. That's something that we try to remove from the equation. We do not require gloves in handling. Um, that is... In, in, in the estimation, not just of myself, but of the trust, um, overblown. Uh, cotton gloves are, are, tend to be much more abrasive than human fingers. And with items that that could be an issue with, one example would be the Declaration of Independence that we have in there, um, 1776, uh, third Dunlap Prane, one of three known to exist. It's much more brittle and fragile than most things because of the way paper was made at that time. So those pieces, those have been encapsulated. So you're not actually putting hand onto uh, paper or anything like that. But contrast that to the Cicero's varying orations that's in there, that's a manuscript, 14, let's say 1450, um, on vellum, it's not going to be adversely affected by your clean hands. So uh, to, to steal a phrase from my dad, as long as you're not eating Cheetos and Snickers, you, know, you, you can go in there and, and, and handle them. But beyond that, we take um, what I consider to be, uh, of course, it's uh, self-serving, uh, reasonable consideration and caution uh, and protection as far as insurance and transportation and care for the books. We don't um, deliver them to a place like this and just lay them on a table and walk out the door. They're in, uh, they're in locked cases that are made with Lexan that you can't break with a hammer, with air holes for circulation to make sure that they... Uh, they maintain a good temperature and things like that in there. And when they're not traveling, we have a, a, you know, a gas-controlled humidity and temperature-controlled vault um, to uh, house the books. Okay, there's one, and there's one down here. I see that you have locations in Lubbock and Cambridge City. The permanent collection, is it split between those two locations, and are they open to the general public? Uh, Thank you. Good, good question. Thank you. Uh, the permanent collection, or, well, I mean, it's all kind of the permanent collection. The things that are not traveling out and about are, uh, by and large, located in Lubbock. 
we do have uh, permanent public exhibits there, and then we also um, do have uh, interns that, that we work with as well, and then we also make those available by appointment if people are interested in seeing things. Um, it is one thing I recommend if you happen to be in Lubbock and you want to see a particular volume, definitely call ahead. Um, because if you travel down there and it happened to be in Grand Rapids, that would be that would be an issue. But no, thank you. Um, there was another one here, I thought. Uh, I've actually got two questions. Uh, you mentioned that you might have scanned some of the documents. I'm wondering if there's a plan to scan the entire collection. And then I'd love to get your thoughts on the reception of bringing these documents to college campuses, given the migration of thinking on most campuses thanks um, so uh, not uh, so short answer we don't have a formal plan to, to move forward it is um, not constantly but but very frequently a, a conversation we have as a board on on looking at that and how to do that and it's why we have worked with five or six different companies over the last 20 years to see what what options there are and how we integrate it and, and how we move it forward. Of course, there's um, time and resources and everything like that that are involved in that. I definitely believe the entire board is supportive of doing it and sees the benefit of it. Um, it's a matter of uh, finding the right way to implement that and move it forward. Uh, so yeah, the loaded question. Um, uh, our, so. One of the things that I think is, is fantastic about the Remnant Trust and about our books, and again, this could just be me, but I, but I don't think it is. Our books, these authors, Aristotle and Plato and, and Locke and Cicero and, and uh, Thomas Paine, these are people that everybody points to. Everybody references them. I don't, whatever your political motivation is, your left, right, center, up, down, whatever it is. And... I think that's one of the great things about the trust is that we do it in a way because we're talking about these ideas. I don't, I don't have an agenda. I'm not telling you that, that Locke was right and it was about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as it got translated. I'm not telling you that the King James Version of the Bible is the one that you should read. However, that is what I think. Um, but that's just because I was raised with it, right? It's the language. Anybody quotes to me out of a new international or a new standardized English, I basically consider it heresy. I mean, that's not how, that's, it's not the way the Bible sounds in my head. But, um, yeah, and Thomas Paine is a good one to point to. So I think the, the right, whatever that means, points to him constantly. Uh, I mean, I grew up with these are the times that try men's souls you know, beat into my head as a kid, right? I, mean, I had to get permission to say that tyranny like hell is not easily conquered when I was in school because I was at a Baptist school and saying that word could have got me in trouble. But later in Payne's life, he writes agrarian justice, right? He's, he's analyzing things from a different perspective, and that's something that the left points to. And I don't think it's one or the other. I don't think that there is a political party that captures what I think the world should be like. Um, and and I, I, I wonder if there are people that think that there's a political party that captures everything they think the world should be like. And I hope that that's what we do. I hope that we steer away from whether it's uh, a label or a pigeonhole or whatever we want to call it, and that we can steer towards saying, let's talk about these ideas and let's Let's discuss them civilly, right? Again, I, I keep going back to that great conversation. And the civil thing, right, it elicits a chuckle because it's funny that we don't expect that. That's not how we interact today. Um, we take sound bites from people we don't like, and we, we tweak them the way that we think is funny or amusing or serves our purpose. And it's easier, and it's amusing. And again, we spend our time doing other things. Um, we, we spend our time, and, and doing important things, right? You're, we raise families, and we try to run businesses, and we try to be successful, and we try to do good, however we define that. And, and, and that's part of it. So I continue to see good reception to the trust, to what we are. And I have seen it at um, a wide spectrum of, of university campuses. Um, that, that, that no matter what either the perception from the outside is of that campus or even their own individual stance, I've seen a, a good reception at all of them. I think, I like to think 
I fool myself one way or the other, that they all want to engage in that conversation, that they all want to be thoughtful and reasonable about those things. Thanks. Anybody else? There's one in the back. It's not about my bracelet, is it? It is, yeah. <laughs> Follow up on that? No. What, um, what does it look like when you go to a college campus? I mean, is it, it looks, sounds like you go to maybe five a year. Um, is there a waiting list? Is it uh, a multiple day kind of thing? Is there a charge? Yeah. Is it something that's open to all students at the college or usually part of the honors program or something along that line? Good. Give uh, us a little. Okay. Thanks. Uh, good question. So uh, between typically six and ten universities in a year. Uh, and typically the books are there for a semester. Uh, sometimes longer. Uh, I believe they're going to be here at Acton uh, for a couple months at least into December. So it's not a, it's not a couple days or, or a weekend and done. We do try to make them available and incorporate them into classes. Um, there is a wait list. We have things scheduled out into 20, well, we have an exhibition in 2026 right now, but we have space between now and then. But we tend to go a year or two in advance. Um, and I, I like that model because it also allows the university's time to uh, solicit faculty, find out what classes are being involved. It gives them a chance to kind of pick books that they would like to have on campus. And uh, is is there a charge? Yes, um, I, I definitely try to try to recuperate some some funds from the university. Um, but I also try to not let that interfere with the university having those books on display. So. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't give you a blanket, but you know, sometimes I get five thousand dollars for a semester, and sometimes I get forty. Um, I, I guess some of that, maybe I shouldn't say that out loud because uh, some of that's based on how well I do at my job, I guess. Uh, so it, it, it depends, but, but that is how we kind of function. Uh, we uh, can provide, we have a few, you know, a couple people uh, that can come in and give you know, presentations and lectures like myself or whatever to kind of talk about those books. We, by no means do we want them to be limited to who they're accessible to. Uh, definitely, there are honors colleges and programs that, that kind of uh, seize on this idea and are the ones that bring it to campus. But I have, I'm, I think I am not aware of any instance where it was limited to who it was exposed to. Uh, we always encourage them to do things like this, not just their own you know, campus community, but the, the wider um, you know, non-academic community as well. Um, all institutions are trying to raise funds and bring in people and tell them about what they do and things like that. And I think that the trust lends itself to that, um, to have it available like that. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. There's one. one. Are you looking at newer books, like in the last two centuries, or are you only looking at older, more That's awesome. classic? Yes, uh, great, fantastic. Um, so yes, we are looking at newer books. So when we started, um, and I, I don't think I touched on this, we uh, arbitrarily picked uh, to stay out of the 20th century, right? This is 1990, mid-90s, 97 is when we incorporated. We weren't going to do anything from the 20th century because how do you judge it? There's too much ego. Do we think it's really going to be? So that's great, right? We set that rule. I mean, I, I love this. I'm so glad you asked this question because I, I, love, uh, I love this. So we made a rule, and don't tell my kids this. And the first thing we did is we broke that rule. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to stay out of the 20th century, except um, we added uh, Orwell and um, Atlas Shrugged is in our collection as well uh, immediately, like right out of the gate we put those in. Like, we, we don't have enough just, uh, distance to judge, except with these, we think we definitely understand. Uh, so the way we operate now is what I call like a sliding 100-year rule. And of course, that's also violated because the, what's in there, Von Mises from 1924. So yeah, it's right at the cusp. But we try to operate based on a sliding 100-year rule. So that being said, also for the last 15 years at least, we have, we quietly look for 20th century things. One, because they're available, they're not particularly costly, um, and looking for, uh, th you know, whether it's, it's Churchill or Hayek or von Mises or what, I mean, there, there's a lot of things to look at, or, you know, Du Bois or any of those things that, that have that conversation. So, yes, we're looking at them, um, but trying to integrate them kind of slowly over time. Um, so, yeah, thanks, good question. 
you said that you acquire these books by any means except theft. So tell us a story. What was the strangest or the funnest acquisition you can recall? I feel like I may have handed out cards that said, ask this question, um, because there's a, there's a decent story to that. Um, very early on, so I was fresh out of grad school and had started doing this, early 2000s. Um, I was at uh, the Rosemont in Chicago at an antique show. And there also, I guess it was maybe antique antiquarian show. There were maybe five or six book dealers there as well. And <clears throat> just walking through, my father and I were there at the time looking at whatever was there. And we're at a book dealer's table, and he has maybe eight books on a table. I mean, they're not a lot, but they're old, and you kind of you develop an eye for those things. So I'm picking them up, looking at them, putting them back down. I pick up this big volume. I open the cover, and there's some, uh, some pencil script in there. And I read it. So I don't know, skeptically, as skeptically as you can be at like whatever, 26. And I put it back down, but I put my hand firmly on top of it. So I've got this, and I'm trying to get my father's attention. I'm like, yeah, come here, you need to take a look at this. <clears throat> so this is a book dealer from Georgia that we had, we had never met, never interacted with. And he had a 1475 Thomas Aquinas Summa Theologica, of which there are until that volume, there are two known copies in the world. And there's this volume on his table, <laughs> right? I mean, in, in Chicago at, a, at an antique show. And um, so uh, he, di he didn't know us. And, and it was something that we're like, hey, we, we'll buy this, but we really would like to verify and everything like that. And of course, you know, he's looking at a couple farm boys from Indiana, like, yeah, right, I'm going to let you walk away. So he checked a couple of references of other book dealers, and we left with that book and verified that hand script in the front was exactly right. There was one at the Newbury in Chicago. There's one at the British Museum. And there's the one that he happened to have um, on display. And it was, because um, the question usually comes along somewhere in there, if he had been asking 10 times his price, we still would have tried to add to the collection. So it was, it, was, it was a great find for us. Um, it, it makes for a fun story. But yeah, I mean, it was one of three known copies. I mean, obviously, Aquinas, one of the forefathering fathers of Latin church, and the, the importance there is hard to overstate. So that, that's one example. That was, that was fun. <laughs> Anybody else? We have one question from the live stream audience. Oh, OK. What is one book that you do not have in your collection that you're looking to add? OK. <clears throat> so I want a second folio printing of Shakespeare. And that in no way is based on my bias as an English major. Um, that is, so we have a few pieces from Shakespeare in the collection. Um, we do not have, uh, and I say second because the folio is ridiculously untouchable, unless anybody knows a donor who would like to do that. Um, I think it's, as I, as I referenced, I think the language that comes from it is, is incredibly important, and the fact that it can be referenced again and again for centuries and uh, shed new light on those ideas. Literature in general, and I'll, again, show my bias. I mean, I look at much of this as literature. These are things I read in literature classes beyond uh, the Bible, but uh, not, not necessarily fiction, but as the literature that they represent. Some big known names would be, it'd be nice to have a Moby Dick in the collection at some point. Um, we have some other Melville in there. And then you start to get into, well, I mean, and the list goes on and on. I mean, I would like to see some early H.G. Wells and some more representation from um, early science fiction or proto-science fiction, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, with Wollstonecraft and going backwards. There's... Uh, I mean, I'd find some version of Hammurabi's code would be nice to add to the collection as well. Uh, but uh, but that's, that's one example. So thank you. Yes, sir. For the collection that you have, have you found or aware of scholarship that says that the edition that you have differs materially from the sort of resources that could be popularly available in terms of the same 
same work, say you have an edition of John Locke, and what you have is actually different than what people will be reading in school. That's a that's a good question. Uh, short answer, no. Uh, that I'm I'm not aware of it. There are a few things that we have, uh, like like the Enoch that that we're still working on getting translated, is the oldest, most complete version. The next oldest has been translated, and there is some interest um, from a couple scholars to, to compare them. Um, and we're talking about a difference of maybe 40 years in the date for when they were done. And uh, but I'm not. I am not familiar with any scholarship that has pointed to it to say, okay, this is this is different or this changes how we view somebody uh, to, to this point. Um, but it is something that uh, we make our stuff available to as far as you know being accessible for OCLC and you know internationally people can find the volumes that we have to uh, to be available as well. So thanks. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think I heard you mention uh, W. E. B. Du Bois. Or, or was okay. it somebody else? No, I did. I think I mentioned him. Okay. Yes. Well, that triggered a question in my mind. I'm wondering um, if in the collection there are uh, representations of, of uh, uh, authors of color, let me say. Okay. Uh, good. All uh, right. So there's one of our volumes of Frederick Douglass is, uh, is in there right now. Um, Boy, that's putting it to me. We have, uh, I think it's in the 20th century, the, the Du Bois that we have. And I'm not sure there is beyond that. So this is a good question. So one of the things I would point to, um, I tend to get that question more about uh, women, female authors in the collection, something like that. So uh, the response I'll give to the women may shed some light on that as well. So we have uh, Mary Wollstonecraft and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and uh, right, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Stowe. Um, and, and even her sister, um, Catherine, in the collection. Well, what you find is that with our starting rule in the 1900s and prior, um, there weren't, the women who were writing weren't necessarily writing about these subjects. Um, they were writing, obviously, uh, and Wollstonecraft is a great example that she deals specifically with these topics. And it's like pointing to our, um, call them non-Western examples in the collection. Like we have Confucius in the collection, and we have an early English translation of the Bhagavad Gita, but you're talking that doesn't get translated into English until like the mid-1800s. Um, and a lot of these things don't even get translated into English um, early on until, until later. So for the, uh, for the people of color, whether it be, like I said, with Douglas or having the Emancipation Proclamation, we also have uh, uh, the first... I believe it's the first publication, the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society, uh, which is in the 1700s. And uh, I think that there are a variety of them that shed light on that question, right? Even, even my references to, to Locke, right? We, we don't acknowledge it out, outright. But life, liberty, and the state or property, of course, that references slavery at that time. And Jefferson changes that, one would presume, because of those concerns and issues. So it's definitely... Uh, a subject that we're aware of and open to. It's about finding the ones that represent that. There are a couple other um, slave narratives that are on our wish list of things that we would like to find and add to the collection. Thanks. Yes, sir, right here in the front. Have you come across any interesting footnotes in the books? So that's a good question. Um, so yes, and I'm thinking of two examples. There's, so the Aristotle, we have the Nicomachean Ethics here, 1488. So two things I'll point to is one, you can see all kinds of um, commentary by a, a secondary reader in there, like paragraphs of it right next to it. Just like if you're taking notes in, in class, at least that's what I did. I, that's where I would write my, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about or I really like this phrase. I'm going to use it in a love letter later, something like that. <laughs> Two things uh, that, that you'll notice, one in that Aristotle is um, you get these little hands that somebody has drawn like a finger. You guys are familiar with them? You, I'm sure, are familiar with this, like, note to Benet, a little finger pointing at, because it was like their highlighter. 
they're trying to draw your attention to that. So that as a, uh, as a note or a notation or like a side note, I think is, is interesting. I didn't know about that until I started to work with the Remnant Trust. And uh, another example is uh, our, one of our, our prints of the Declaration of Independence has notes from a previous owner that indicate how the different delegates voted. And it, and it was very much like you were doing it now. It's like, oh, Tim, he voted no. Talk to him later. And it, it was like, you know, the way they voted was an indication of the type of person they were and how they felt about them. So um, I always find that interesting. Uh, we have not had nearly um, in any portion of our collection with enough scholarly work done to find out what all the notes mean and what people are saying in there. Um, but it will lead me to uh, another story. We have a Federalist Papers. It's not the one that's here. 1788, two volumes, um, you know, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, that came to our collection from a family in New England. And it was in the same family for 150 years. And it was owned by a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses. And it's notated in the front cover, you know, Tim owned this, then Steve, and I give it to Malachi, and now Alex, and whatever, all the way down through the family. And this is somebody who was in attendance in St. John's Church when Henry gave his famous speech. Right, that, was, that was really cool when that became aware uh, to, to us for the collection, like the provenance on it as far as whose hands it has gone through. And it leads me to one of the... One of the points I didn't make is that not only is it about the author, and not only is it about the book and the time period, and again, I'll talk about these, uh, these time machines, it's about whose hands they've gone through over the last 100 years, 500 years, 700 years, of names of people that we might know, right? I mean, who, whose hands have these things passed through? Because they did get preserved. And that's an entire other conversation as far as why we preserve them and, and what value is placed on them. But it's, it's that connection. It's those notes in there that make it more uh, real, maybe, that, that, that connect us and take us and transport us to reference a very obscure show. Um, uh, a character named Zathras, it makes us unstuck in time. Because you're not here right now, and you're not really there. You're somewhere, right? And you're drawing those connections and, and trying to come to that understanding uh, separated from all those other things. Any other questions? No? I, I answered everything. That's great. Thank you, Chris. Please give a round of applause. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.